We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 4. So we've been walking through uh, the book of Acts as a church for, uh, I don't know, what would it be, a couple of months. And we've arrived at Acts chapter 4. Sometimes they don't always come in the right order because of us being a multi-site church and, you know, stuff like that. But anyway, uh, we're in Acts chapter 4. Let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit. And we recognize that coming into contact with a holy God might involve you challenging things about our lives that you would like to change. And we just want to say to you, God, that we are open to you. We'd love to go away from this place having been given hope and peace and joy. And also, we recognize that you might also want to put your finger on particular things in our lives that need to be reshaped. And we just want to say, Lord, do the whole thing, please. Please. The worst case scenario here is that we all leave this place the same as we came in. And so we just give you freedom in our lives to do whatever you want. And we also say, we recognize that the tools of your trade are the word and the spirit. And so we, we pray that in this moment you would cause your word to burn within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And let me just say this. If you've been a Christian for a little while, it may be that this little passage is familiar to you. If it is, just allow yourself to be shocked by it because it, it, it has some shocking things in it. And the problem is the more familiar you become with particular passages, the more inoculated we become against them. And so let's just allow ourselves to be shocked. It says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. There's a whole sermon in that, isn't there? No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy people among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, who was a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's our scripture for today. So what we have here is a kind of a, I don't know what to call it really, a summary passage or a kind of a, a moment of commentary really. So, so we know that this book was written by Luke who also wrote Luke's gospel and we know that he set out, because he told us, he set out to 
put together an orderly account of everything that happened. And so lots of Luke's gospel and lots of the book of Acts just kind of reads like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And then every now and then, we have a moment of commentary from Luke where he kind of says, and this is kind of what it looks like now. You know, this is, this is the story so far. This is how it feels to be part of the church at this point. And that's kind of what we have here. There are no needy people among them. That's his moment of commentary. And I don't know about you, but uh, I felt really shocked by this passage. And the reason I felt shocked was because this is not normal human behavior. Like, normal human behavior is stockpiling toilet rolls. That's what we've learned from COVID. You know, when we don't know what the future holds, I'm going to make sure that I'm okay. Right? Normal human behavior is... Oh, goodness, I I better go out and fill up my car with unleaded petrol so that I make sure that I've got what I need, right? Uh, There was a story in the newspaper recently about just around the time of Halloween where where a guy backs his Volvo up to, uh, I think it was Morrison's in Brentford in London, and, and he filled his entire estate car up with pumpkins, it's like stockpiling pumpkins. Now, in one sense, that's, I was going to say that's normal human behavior. That's not normal human behavior. But it's a, it's a manifestation of the human condition, which is I'm just going to make sure that I've got as many pumpkins as I need, never mind that there are children crying themselves to sleep at night because they didn't get a pumpkin. The normal thing to do is when the pressure's on and you don't know what the future holds and you don't know what's around the corner, the normal thing is I'm going to make sure that I've got more than enough. And yet what these people are doing is the precise opposite. It's, they've been, these are people who've been, um, the persecution's begun to come. Uh, Peter and John have already had an overnight stay in prison for preaching the good news of Jesus. Uh, they've no idea whether, you know, what, what's around the corner. And, and so, in, but instead of looking out for themselves, it says that they were open-handed, generous and ridiculously so. And so the question that I want to ask today is, what on earth has happened to them that would cause them to behave like that? Something dramatic has happened. What on earth is it? And the way that I want to answer that question is, let's be honest, slightly experimental, right? So I've never written a talk like this before. I may never write a talk like this again. Um, uh, it's, it, this talk has got largely no illustrations and almost no points. Um, and, and also, just to warn you, if you're new to church or you're new to the Bible and uh, y- your suspicion before you came through the door was, I bet they'll speak it w- in long, you know, with long words that I don't understand and, and they'll uh, assume lots of knowledge about the Bible, then this is your worst nightmare because this is basically what's about to happen. But I just want to say, hold on in there, because the last sentence will be really good. (laughs) That's pretty much the deal. So, because the way I want to answer it is by trying to to take a kind of a a gallivant through the whole of the the story of Scripture. And um, essentially, the, the way I want to answer the question, what on earth has just happened to these people, is by saying that this moment is the fulfillment of generations upon generations of prophecy and and promise. That's that's where I want to go. So let's start here. Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, 
Jesus, just before he goes to be with his father uh, uh, for the rest of eternity, uh, he, he spends a series of moments with his disciples and he teaches them on one particular topic. I don't know whether you noticed it when we were in Acts chapter 1, but the one topic that he teaches them about is the kingdom of God. I'm getting that from Acts 1 verse 3. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, none of his disciples or followers would have been in any way surprised by that because uh, that was the subject that he spoke about all the time before his death and resurrection, all the time. So, for example, the parables were, were pretty much all about the kingdom of God. You know, in fact, lots of them start, the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven, which is just another way of saying the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is like uh, a yeast in the dough, or a mustard seed, or a, a farmer who scatters seed on the ground, or whatever. So, so all of his parables are about the kingdom. Um, equally, uh, just his, his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, uh, equally, he makes these major pronouncements uh, throughout his earthly ministry. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God has come in power. And so, like, no one was surprised when, he, when his last teaching before he went to be with his father was about the subject of the kingdom of God. However, I, don't, I became a Christian when I was 15. And, and I had this kind of almost immediate appetite for reading the Bible. And one of the things that I noticed almost immediately that really confused me was that this subject of the kingdom of God seemed to come out of nowhere. You know, it seemed to be like, you couldn't really find that language in the whole of the Old Testament. And then suddenly it's like the kingdom of God appears with John the Baptist and then from there on in. And so I was like, where, why does it just appear out of nowhere? And was it not there in the Old Testament? And what I want to suggest, actually, is that nothing could be further from the truth, that the whole of the story of the Old Testament is really about the kingdom. Uh, let me just interrupt myself for a moment and say this. The God we worship is infinite and in so many ways incomprehensible. The only way that we know anything about God is because he's chosen to make himself known. And we only know about God what he's chosen to tell us, right? So, so I'm sure that there are loads and loads of things that, that, we have, that we're utterly clueless about, about God because he's infinite and all-powerful and all-knowing and, all, uh, and present everywhere. And so, and so, but, but, so it's really interesting that the things that he's chosen to tell us. And what I want to suggest is that Throughout the Old Testament, the primary way that he makes himself known, the primary revelation of himself that he gives us is that he is an immensely powerful and glorious king. Throughout the Old Testament, the primary image we have of God is of God as king. That's slightly controversial, but I intend to back it up. Um, the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament is best understood as, a, as the relationship between a king and his subjects. You might say, well, where, where are you getting that from? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, for example, uh, uh, the story of the Exodus. In the story of the Exodus, it's primarily a story about God as king opposing another king 
called Pharaoh and conquering a people for himself. And, and the reason I can say that is because that's Moses' understanding of what's just happened. So Moses, when he brings the people across the, the Red Sea on dry land and then the waters cover over the Egyptian armies, Moses and Miriam burst into song and they sing this tribute to God as king. And it's full of language that it only makes sense in the context of a royal king. Exodus 15, verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. Verse 12. You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. Verse 18. The Lord reigns forever. So he's saying God as king has has defeated our opponents on our behalf. You see it reflected time and time again in the Psalms. Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. Do you see what I mean? So this, this kingship language is everywhere. In the, in the tabernacle, the tabernacle is essentially a mobile royal palace. It's like the, the kind of royal battlefield marquee that a king would use so that he could be present in, amongst his armies during battle. And it, right at the heart of the tabernacle is essentially a royal throne room. It's called the Holy of Holies. And within the Holy of Holies, what's there? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a wooden box wrapped in solid gold. It has within it the royal decrees of the king, the Ten Commandments. And then it has these two angelic figures, these cherubim on either side that, that are made out of solid gold and their wings, the Bible says, are kind of pointing upwards. And so if you were to look at the Ark of the Covenant and, and you didn't know anything about it, you would say, well, it looks like a throne to me. And then it just so happens that the Bible says that, that God dwelt above the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. And so God is seated on the throne in the royal palace that moves around with his people. And the idea was that, that uh, God would be the king of the people of Israel. That was the idea. That all the other nations would have a human king, but they wouldn't need one because they've already got a much better king than that. The problem is that they weren't happy with that. And so all the time they, they say to Samuel, Samuel, yeah, we, what we really want is a king like all the other nations have kings. And eventually Samuel gets so... Um, fed up with just fending them off, that he takes their request to God. And in 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, God says to him, listen to all the people, and this is God saying to Samuel, listen to all the people are saying to you, Samuel, it's not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Perhaps the most significant way that God's kingship is revealed throughout the Old Testament is in the theme that you can follow of covenant. Now, in the church today, we've reduced the concept of covenant to a kind of, a bit like a promise or something like that, a kind of abstract idea. But, but in the ancient Near East, which is the time and the place that this text was written, in the ancient Near East, a covenant 
is a treaty made by a king. Right? So a king would uh, conquer a people for himself and then he'd uh, make a promise, make a peace treaty with them and that peace treaty was called a covenant. Um, and so my friend Derek Morphew, who's the kind of beating theological heart of the Vineyard family, uh, he's a South African guy, um, he says, whenever you read the, the word covenant, the word covenant in the Bible, you should immediately think of a king and a kingdom. Because wherever a covenant's being made in the ancient Near East, it's being made by and on behalf of a king for his kingdom. Which I find really, really helpful. And so in the ancient Near East, a king goes out to battle and he conquers. Oh dear, I'm not going to act it out, but he goes out, he conquers a people for himself, and then he makes a covenant with them. And archaeologists have dug up loads of covenants from the ancient Near East, and, and uh, we know that these are the kind of treaties that, that kings were making all the time with various different people. Babylon, you know, Babylonian kings, Assyrian kings, you know, Mesopotamian kings, and the British Museum has a whole bunch of them that you can go and look at and so we know that a covenant is a thing made by a king and and covenants had three do you see what I mean this is a long way around from Acts chapter 4 I promise you I'll get there covenants have have three uh, things that are always present in every kind of covenant the first thing is a uh, a list of requirements so the king says okay people this is how I want you to behave this is you know, this is the lifestyle of the kingdom. And so you shall do this, and you shall not do that, and you must do that, and you must not do that. A list of requirements. The second thing is um, the blessings and curses. So the blessings and curses are a list of blessings that will come to you if you keep the terms of the covenant, and the curses that will come to you if you don't. And so the blessings are things like... Um, uh, if you keep the terms of this covenant, then uh, good things will happen to you and you'll be blessed and, and you'll experience um, all kinds of positive things and, and I'll defend you. So if, if an enemy comes to attack you, I'll use all of the resources of the kingdom to defeat the enemies on your behalf. The curses are the opposite. They're, they are, if you don't keep the terms of the covenant, then uh, bad things are going to happen. You know, you're going to lose family members and you're going to lose property, and you're going to lose land, and I'm not going to fight your enemies, I'm going to fight with your enemies against you. And that's going to go really badly. So the, the requirements, the blessings and curses, and then the third thing was a blood sacrifice. And what they tended to do, this is, sorry if you're vegan, uh, or if you've got a pet, but what, what, what they would do is, that they would literally break apart animals, you, you know, cut them apart, um, birds or, or livestock or whatever, and then often what they'd do is, is they'd lay them um, in a kind of avenue, like either side of a little kind of walkway, and then both parties would walk through the broken bits of body. So it's essentially a blood sacrifice, and it's a way of saying, if either of us breaks the terms of this covenant, then that's what will happen to you. You know, it's not going to end well for you. There's going to be bloodshed. All of that to say that God himself makes a series of covenants with his people throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Genesis chapter 9, 
with Noah. You see it in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. And there you literally see these, this avenue of broken pieces of body. But interestingly, uh, Abraham gets put to sleep and God goes down the avenue by himself, which is kind of signifying, this is pretty one-sided here. Um, but the main covenant that's made in the Old Testament is between God and Moses and the Israelites. And, uh, and what we see is all of the things that I've just talked about. You can see the list of requirements. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt not do that. Is the list, you know, the, the, uh, it doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or not. Um, uh, you know, uh, archaeologists and, and uh, scholars of the ancient Near East can look at the law and say, well, it's just a list of covenant requirements. The second thing is the blessings and curses, which can be found in Leviticus 26. And we don't have time to read those now, uh, but it's brutal. You know, I mean, good things will happen to you or horrible things will happen to you. And then the shedding of blood happens in Exodus 24, verse 8. It says, then Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. You'll be relieved that we're not going to reenact that today. He sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And so the Old Testament is essentially a story about God making, God as king, making a covenant with the people that he has conquered for himself. And he's going to offer them protection and blessing in exchange for obedience and faithfulness. And if only they'd followed that, and if only they'd been obedient and faithful, then all would have gone well. Unfortunately, the story of the Old Testament is also a story about a rebellious people who never followed the terms of the covenant. And it wasn't even just that they wouldn't, it's almost like they couldn't. You know, they were so broken, they, were, they had so much uh, uh, sin that had just uh, contaminated their souls that they, they kind of weren't able to, to keep the terms of the covenant. And, and so... You see them neglecting the poor. You see them worshipping other gods. You see them, um, you, you know, almost like forgetting that the law even exists to the degree where they lose it. And there are several generations where the law, no one knows where it is. And, and then somebody finds it under their bed or something like that. It's like, look, I found the law. And everyone's like, oh, that'd be interesting. Let's see what's in it. So they read the law aloud. And then they weep and they just, oh, Lord, we're so sorry. We didn't realize. And we, we're going to keep the law from now on. But it lasts about 10 minutes, you know. And so the prophets, if we, you know, coming through to the prophets, the prophets, um, if you read them, lots of it is, is unpleasant reading because it's warning them about the consequences that exist in the curses of the law. You know, if you keep re rebelling against God, if you keep not keeping the terms of the covenant, then the, the, the curses of the law will be enacted. You know, there'll be lots of people will die and you'll, you'll lose all of your possessions and you'll lose your land and the, God will fight with your enemies against you. You know, it's like warning them, judgment is coming. Please turn from your wicked ways. Return to the Lord and he'll return to you. But they just can't do it. And so eventually in 597 BC, God enacts the terms of the covenant. He enacts the curses. And, and the Babylonians besiege Jerusalem and they carry off the people of God into captivity in Babylon. They lose all of their possessions. They lose all of their land. They lose all, a number of their family members and so on. It's just terrible. 
But what's really interesting is, from that point on, the prophets kind of turn on a sixpence. And instead of judgment and warning, it becomes, their message becomes mercy and grace. And what their message essentially is, is, is the king will come again and he'll make a new covenant with you. It's all grace. You know, they had no right for it, but the, the, the prophet starts saying the king will come again and he'll make a new covenant. And so we just um, open up some scripture for a moment. Turn, for example, to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Uh, God says this, The days are, com- are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, restraining their behavior with the law just didn't work. And so he's come up with a new plan. And the new plan is he's going to put the terms of the law and he's going to write it right in the core of their being. He's going to write it on their hearts. Um, And then if we flick forward to, hang on, uh, Ezekiel 36 There's a similar promise there. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. God says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is fascinating. So what he's saying is, like, you just couldn't do it. Your hearts were too broken. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to wipe away your sin. And then I'm going to, that heart that's just hard and callous and rebellious, I'm going to take that one out. And I'm going to perform a heart transplant. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And then when that's happened, I'm going to go further than that even, and I'm going to put my spirit into your heart, and and my spirit is going to move you to follow my decrees. So totally different, you you know, like J. John says it really well when he says this. He says, uh, God comes to deal with the heart of the human problem, which is the problem of the human heart. And the way that he's going to do it is he's going going to start again on the inside. And he's going he's to replace your existing heart with a new heart. And then he's going to move you by the Spirit of God to follow what he's asking of you, what he really wants you to do. And then finally, in Isaiah, Isaiah 35, uh, this language of the Holy Spirit and, and how the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out into people to, to shape them is really powerful. And, and often he uses the language of water coming to drench the desert. And so Isaiah 35 verse 1, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And then forward to verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
And so what he's saying is, there's going to be so much power poured out that it's like sparks of a, in a furnace. You know, it's like just there's going to be power spilling out in all directions to the degree where it's not just the human heart that's solved, but there's going to be all kinds of healing. You know, uh, people who've never been able to walk before are going to suddenly be able to walk, and people who've never spoken before are going to be able to speak and all this kind of stuff. It's crazy. And so prophet after prophet is saying the same thing in all kinds of different ways. The king will come again to his people and uh, just purely in grace. He doesn't have to, he chooses to. And he's going to make a new covenant with the people, but the covenant will be different from the old covenant. It won't just be laws trying to restrain people's behavior. It will be um, a new heart, their sin being wiped away. And uh, the new heart will be able to follow the, the, uh, the desires of God. And then, and then the Holy Spirit is going to come and move that new heart to become an obedient and faithful heart. And then for 400 years, nothing. And so people are thinking, um, I thought there was a promise there, but it just seems to have not come true. Until a baby is born in Bethlehem who is full of the Holy Spirit even from birth who is called the king, even as a newborn, who performs the kinds of signs and wonders that Isaiah has been prophesying. This is the signs of the real power that's involved in this king and new kingdom, new covenant. And he says again and again, the kingdom of God has come. And then the night before he's betrayed, he takes a cup and he says, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. And then he takes the bread and he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. In other words, one understanding of what's happening at the cross is, is uh, um, the new covenant blood sacrifice inaugurating the new covenant. You know, his body, he, he himself is being broken apart in two, in a sense. He himself is the one who's having his blood shed to inaugurate this new covenant. And in other words, what he's saying is the new covenant, everything that was promised by Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and others, it starts today. And then several weeks later, the... Uh, all of the people who are following Jesus at that time are filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, which is everything that had been promised, which is a really, really long-winded way of coming back to our passage, like I said, in Acts chapter 4. When we ask the question, what on earth has happened to these people that they would behave so abnormally and counterculturally? And the answer is, they're the new covenant people of God. This is the answer. This is the fulfillment of everything that's been promised to the people for, for centuries. This is, um, you know, their sins been wiped away. Their hearts of stone have been replaced with the heart of flesh. They've, they're, they're, the Holy Spirit, the law has been written on their hearts. They're, they've been filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit who's moving them to follow the desires of God. I have no idea where I am on my notes. They, they're doing all of this stuff. You know, they, they, they were one in heart and mind. And no one counted their possessions as their own, but they you know, gave everything that they, they shared, everything that they had. They're doing that because that's what God wanted and not because he's 
He's like legislated for it. They're doing it because God's moving them from the inside out. And, um, you know, if this passage was in the Old Testament and you found a group of people in 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles or something like that who were um, sharing their possessions and, and one in heart and mind and so on, you, you'd say, what on earth happened there? Then the answer would be, well, they're very obedient to the law. You know, God's law has been powerfully at work in that group of people and suddenly they're just being obedient. All of their instincts and urges are being restrained by the law. But it doesn't say God's law was powerfully at work in them because it's not in the Old Testament. What it says in verse 33 is God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy people among them. And so it turns out that they aren't being drastically restrained by the law. They're being dramatically retrained by the Holy Spirit. These are a new covenant people. And so in the old covenant, God had to legislate. Can you believe this? He had to legislate that they should love one another. And then here they are. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit and they just find themselves being one in heart and mind. In the old covenant, he said to them, when you harvest your field, don't harvest all the way to the edge, but just leave a strip around the edge of the field so that people who are poor and who don't have anything, who are destitute, they can come and they can help themselves to what you've left behind. In the new covenant, he doesn't have to legislate anything and they just find themselves not only not harvesting the whole field, they're selling the jolly field and giving the money away. Not because he's told them to do it, just because they want to do it. In the Old Testament, they were constantly criticized for neglecting the poor. And here they are, there's no needy people among them. In the Old Testament, they grumbled and complained all the time. And here we are, there's a guy called Barnabas, he's full of the Holy Spirit, and he just turns out to be coincidentally the most encouraging person that anyone had ever met. They called him the son of encouragement. And I say all of that to say this. Let's receive a fresh vision from Jesus about what we're doing right now, about the church. The church in Jesus' heart is a church where people can be changed. And not because we, you know, cause, we make them behave but because Jesus transforms people by the power of the Holy Spirit from the inside out. A community, we are, we are in, uh, from, a, from a biblical standpoint, a group of people whose shame has been wiped away, who've had our hearts renewed, who've had our souls filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're people who are constantly having our values and our desires and our instincts and our ambitions shaped by the heart of God himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just finish with this. I was speaking to a lady recently. I don't think she was a Christian. And... Uh, I, 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 she seemed vaguely interested in our church. And, and, you know, so I was like, well, you're vaguely interested, so I'm going to tell you all about it. And, and <laughs> so I was saying, oh, we've got this sort of strap line in our church that says, um, come as you are. And I, I was saying, you know, we, we, we just love it. We just, anyone can come just exactly as they are. And, and, and she just came back quick as a flash. And she said, oh, you might tell people come as they are, but I bet they don't get to stay as they are. By which she meant, 
I bet you glare at people until they conform to your, um, you, you know, your, your behavioral norms. I bet you wag your fingers at people and show them in a judgmental and disapproving way that they need to change their ways. And, and also, probably, there was also a hint of her experience, perhaps, of hypocrisy. That, you know, I bet you're a group of people who make ev everyone else conform to a standard that you don't really con conform to yourself in your private life. And you know when you think of what you should have said about three weeks after the event, you know, so in the moment, I think I said something like this. I said something like, oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, people can come as they are, and, and we don't make people do anything. They can stay as they are for as long as they like. You know, it's like we're just happy that they're there. And what I wish I'd said was, stay as they are. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to stay as they are when what's on offer is so powerful? that God is offering to us as the community, as the people of God, as the new covenant people of God, that we would have our sin and our brokenness wiped away, that our hard and callous and rebellious hearts could be replaced, that, our, um, that, that God's very desire, when he, when he intended to create us from eternity past, his intended plan for us, would be written right on the core of our hearts and that he would then, by the power of the Spirit, enable us to live the life exactly as our Creator had always intended. That we could be, you know, the patterns of, of thought and, um, uh, you know, self-talk and, and, and uh, our, our, the, the self-criticism could be broken in the name of Jesus. That, that the, the cycles and patterns of behavior and addiction and so on could be absolutely obliterated, that we could become not, not just like slightly renovated people, but entirely new people. Like, why would anyone not want that? Let's stand, shall we? Conscious of the time. But honestly, like, here's where I am. Like, as I've realized... Um, some of this stuff that I'm talking about over the last week or two and try to release it in my own life, I, I, I think I'm at the place where I'm like, Jesus, I really don't want to stay like this. And I wonder whether, you know, just in your own hearts, I just encourage you to say the same thing to the Lord. You know, Jesus, we really don't want to stay like this. We want to be transformed. We want to be changed. Maybe just where you are, you might just want to be saying to the Lord, here's the particular area of my own life that I would most love to experience transformation. Perhaps you know that you're just so self-critical, constantly self-critical. It's just wrestling with an addiction of some sort or a habit. 
Perhaps there's bitterness or resentment in your life or unforgiveness. To be honest, every single one of us could say that yes to one of those things. Lord Jesus, we bring those things to you, believing that you could bring dramatic change. Come by the power of your spirit and do it right now.